The following is a Frank R. Wilson presentation. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. We talk to those from the industry and learn about them and their favorite scores. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So let's take a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we're going to play today. Welcome, film music fans. We're going to do something a little bit different today on What's the Score? Uh, the reason for that is very simple. We're celebrating our one-year anniversary of the program. That's right. We've been on for one year, and it's amazing. Uh, and actually, mind-boggling that it's been that quick. One year. Over 20 episodes. Uh, countless guests that were really informative, funny, interesting and some incredible music, some of which I was familiar with and some of which I wasn't. It was really a lot of fun for me to produce all those shows and just as equally as fun uh, putting together this retrospective. So I've chosen some of the more interesting clips from uh, some of the episodes that we've had in the past year. But mind you, I couldn't include everybody or any everything. Uh, there might be some people that you're hoping you get to hear today that you won't episodes that I wasn't able to highlight, and I apologize for that, but just really couldn't include everything I wanted to. Uh, however, that's the beauty of the archives. If you go back to our Podbean uh, website, you can find any episode that we've done before and relive or revisit uh, the ones that you like the best. Uh, so with that, why don't we go ahead and dive in and go down uh, memory lane, if you will, and talk about some of these episodes that we've had. Uh, the first one, which I was really proud of because, you know, being the very first episode, you'd like to make a splash. And we certainly did that by having a, a mainstream Hollywood composer, George Clinton, join us for a two-part episode. Uh, it was interesting. George was very excited about doing it and really put a lot of work and effort into it. Uh, so much so, in fact, we decided it couldn't be just one episode. It was going to have to be two. He was interested in not only sharing some of his favorites, uh, but also talking about things like rejected scores and uh, also giving us a little bit of insight into how the process works. So that was one of the things that I asked him that I thought was really interesting that I want to share with you now. And that was simply this. What, what's the process like? What, what is it like when you're a composer and you sit down and write a score for a major motion picture? And here's our discussion on that. Well, um, when I started, there was no such thing as uh, doing mock-ups. You know, you, you, you could play it on the piano and, and go, and the French horns are going to go, da-da, da-da, and the director goes, oh, okay. And you really never knew, they really never knew what it was going to sound like until they got into uh, the scoring stage. And then, you know, the pressure was on because the, the words I hated to hear after I conducted a cue from uh, the engineer in the booth was, uh, George, could you come in? The director would like to speak with you. <laughs> oh, yeah, the words you don't want to hear. Uh, you knew you were in for a long day. 
But uh, that has changed. Um, there was no such thing as temper, uh, tip scores. There was no such thing as test marketing where they hire an audience and, you know, try to get scores from the audience as to how they like the movie or don't like it, how they like the musical approach or don't like it. Uh, so some of the marketing aspects of it and physical and technical aspects of it have changed. But the basic job is the same job um, as it was when I started out. Yeah, it's interesting that, that now instead of having to either record a, uh, bring in some musicians and do a demo to give them a sense of how it's going to sound or instead of waiting to that you know day when the recording sessions start, now you can, you can almost recreate, I suspect with like a, a keyboard, you can recreate a lot of the sounds that you need to give a feel or a flavor for what it's going to sound like. It really, uh, that's really true. And in fact, <clears throat> excuse me, it's become a, an invaluable tool uh, because you're having to move so fast and um, it's, it's, ve- it's better to get a sense right away of whether or not where you're going with it is, uh, is the direction the director uh, wants or needs uh, for the film. So that's really the best way to do it. And the better you make those mock-ups sound, the easier your job's going to be for the rest of the film. So I spend a lot of time, yeah. uh, my assistant and I spend a lot of time making sure they sound great when the director comes over to listen to them. Do you, um, what, what, I, maybe there isn't a typical, but how much time are you usually given between, you know, starting to put, uh, put notes together and when the, when the recording session is finally finished, is there an average amount of time that you're given for that? Well, there was, uh, that's one of the things that's changed a lot too since I started. Uh, maybe when I started, I could, I had up to eight weeks, you know, and mm-hmm. so, sometimes if you're hired early on a film, uh, then you have much longer than that. But nowadays, you know, six weeks, you're really lucky to have six weeks and sometimes maybe just four weeks uh, between the time you start composing and the time you start recording. Wow. And then I mean, it- the other problem is they keep changing the movie based upon uh, test results from uh, preview screenings. And, uh, you know, and so um, you're always having to adapt what you've written to the newest cut. I told the director of uh, Austin Powers, Jay Roach, I said, you know, it's like trying to fit clothes on a running man. You know, it's like, (laughs) okay, I got it. Okay, wait, let let me recut it. Okay, I got it. Until finally, you know, you get down to the scoring stage and... uh, and even then, sometimes they'll bring in new cuts of scenes, and you have to adapt it right there on the, on the podium. Wow. All right, so what's, what's your record? What's the shortest amount of time that you were given between you know, composing and finally ultimately getting recorded? I did a replaced score, um, and I forgot what it was. It was two weeks. But I think the, the most music I've ever had to write in the shortest amount of time was a 90-minute uh, orchestral score for Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and I had four weeks to do it. And that was, I was really crunching. I bet. 90 minutes. Yeah. That's actually, that's, well, I don't know. These days, I think there's, there, there seems to be more music than there used to be, but in, in films, I mean, but 90 minutes, that's a lot, folks. Yeah. We then turned our attention to uh, the other subject that we were going to cover on rejected scores. And I was actually very pleased that George didn't mind sharing uh, an example of one of his scores that happened to be rejected and in fact was uh, going to be made public for the first time on this program 
And he talked and gave a little bit of background about how it all happened to give you kind of an appreciation for what composers sometimes can go through. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with George, and it, it, it was obvious that we developed a good rapport very early on, and I think really uh, ended the uh, the program as as friends. We uh, really enjoyed the same things and enjoyed each other's company, and I will forever be grateful for him to be the uh, first guest in our program. But for now, let's um, let's listen to his talk about uh, what it's like to go through. Uh, a score and work on it and uh, have it ultimately rejected by the director and the producers. Here's uh, here's what he told us about that experience. Now, my first question before we play it, has this ever been heard in public before? No. World premiere, folks. World premiere. World premiere on What's the Score, a world premiere playing of music that you've definitely haven't heard before because it was never made public. That That's exciting. I'm uh, excited, too. Uh, yes. I, I have an interesting story with this. Uh, Please. The, the director, Keenan Ivory Wines, um, they had had a big success with Scary Movie. And I met with him and, you know, he showed me uh, some uh, dailies or a, a, an assembly of the film. And uh, he was happy to have me do it. Um, and then um, I wasn't able, we weren't able to really connect after that. I never really had a, it was not a collaboration. Um, I would um, show him stuff and his comments were yes or no. And that was it. You know, I was sort of, if it were no, I was sort of left in the dark as to, well, how can I, how can I improve it? And um, it seemed to be going okay until uh, the day of the recording session. Uh, and we had rented uh, the big studio at Fox and I had a big orchestra showing up and a chorus. And the producers met me at the, the door of the studio and said, um, we should cancel the session. Um, the director thinks it's a, it's a big waste of time. And of course I'd been working on this thing. I was very excited Uh, to me. The best moment in the film, uh, in the film scoring process is being in the studio and hearing it come to life. And so so I said, well, look, you, you're going to have to pay for this studio. Anyway, you've already uh, booked it. You're going to have to pay for these musicians. Anyway, you've already booked them. Um, let's go ahead and record, you know, at least a couple of days worth. And, uh, you might find something that you wind up using in the end the reality is you're going to have to pay for it anyway. So it's not going to cost you any money and you might wind up with something you can use. And so they agreed and, uh, the director never showed up. And, hmm. uh, I told the orchestra right from the top, I said, well, Here's the deal. Well, you may never hear this move, music in the movie, but we're going to have a wonderful time recording for the next couple of days. And uh, thank you for being here. And, you know, let's let's just do it. Wow. And so, so anyway, uh, you're going to hear um, a couple of cues, I think, from uh, from this. Uh, the approach I took on this and the approach I like to take with uh, a lot of comedy is I, I think comedy is like... Um, it's like those uh, comedy teams, you know, there's a straight man and there's a comedian. Right. And like Laurel and Hardy or uh, Abbott and Costello, stuff like that. To me, the music is a straight man. And uh, the comedy is happening on the screen. The, the comedians, the actors are producing the comedy. And especially if it's something like either a spy movie in Austin Powers case, the more um, authentically spy-like the music sounds, the funnier 
the absurdity of the comedy is. Hmm. And that was the approach I took on this and the one I took told the director I wanted to take. And um, he didn't like it. And, um, and so the music supervisor told me at the end of the sessions, uh, we're going a different direction. Thank you for your hard work. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that, that's a fascinating story. I appreciate you sharing that because uh, I'm I'm sure it's not something that's really easy to talk about. But like I say, the good news is, ladies and gentlemen, this is the uh, rejected score for Scary Movie Two, written by our guest who has kindly decided to premiere this recording on this show, written by our guest George Clinton. Enjoy.
everybody that's listened to this program knows a couple of things about me. One, I'm a, a big James Bond fan. And two, I'm particularly in love with the music of John Barry. I make no secret about that. So it was a thrill for me when I was able to get as a guest on the program a gentleman named Lucas Kendall. Now you might ask, who is that? He's a hero of mine. I was so excited to learn in the early 2000s that someone was putting together all the James Bond soundtracks, uh, especially from the earlier films, and redoing them, remixing them, you know, getting them, uh, you know, the technology treatment to make them sound a little bit better. But on top of that, he was able to get the original master tapes and was able to release a lot of cues that had never been heard on a commercial audio system before. You could only have heard these through the movies. And so that was particularly exciting. So I was really just delighted to have him on the program. And, of course, wanted to ask, how did this all come about? How were you able to make this happen? And so he uh, shared the story with us. So this was, I think, um, in the fall of 2003. Okay. And I had been producing CDs on Filmscore Monthly for some time. And I knew the licensing people at MGM. And I had always asked them, hey, what's going on with the James Bond soundtracks? Because the James Bond soundtracks for the early films from Dr. No through The Living Daylights, and including Goldeneye, I think, were part of a licensing deal um, with EMI. And EMI was also Capitol Records. EMI has sub subsequently been acquired by Universal Music, but at the time they were their own company. Mm -hmm. So EMI had the rights to the Bond soundtracks. And I always would ask MGM, because I knew that deal was going to be expiring because they had told me, I said, Is, are they, what's happening with those? Are they coming back to you? And at one point, the licensing guy said, no, I think we're going to renew with them. And I think they're going to, they want to do <clears throat> new releases. And I said, oh my God, that's like the mother load. Do you know what they're going to do? Are they going to like improve them? Are they going to add and release music? I don't remember the exact conversations, but somehow I was able to beg for an introduction with the people at Capitol Records who were doing this. So I, I went to a meeting at EMI Capitol, which at the time uh, was on Wilshire. I think it was the Variety Building at the time. Anyway, so I went to this meeting and I met with three of the executives there. And I sort of told them who I was and what I did and what I knowed how, knew how to do and said, you know, what are you guys going to do with this? And they said, well, we're only really budgeted to just reissue the old albums. Mm -hmm. said, Ugh. I said, well, all right, what were you going to spend on? Them? And I think the answer is like, well, $2,000 each. I said, okay, guys, for $2,000 each, I'll do it. And I'll get my guys to do it. And I'll give you the good long versions that sound better for the same amount of money. And they're like, well, okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, it sounds good to us. And MGM said, okay, that sounds good to us. Because I also, part of the story is that I knew where those master tapes were. Because one of the guys at MGM had at one point given me an inventory of the tape vaults at Abbey Road in England. Mm -hmm. And said, here's all this stuff that they have in this vault because a bunch of it belongs to us and we're trying to get it to get them to send it back to us. And I saw in that manifest, like they had Thunderball. They had basically they had Thunderball, uh, You Only Live Twice, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, 
And they also had, they had the man with the golden gun and they had something from the spy who loved me, but it was not clear if it was the film performance or the album performance. And they had for gold, for Goldfinger, they had the uh, British version of the vinyl that had extra cuts compared right. to so, so I knew they had at least those mm. and, and I knew where they were. So they said, okay. And the first step was that they had their guys at Abbey Road buy a hard drive and transfer these tapes onto a hard drive. In the end, they spent more than to the $2,000. I spent $2,000 on the mixing engineer and the mastering engineer, but they did step up and they spent money to transfer these tapes because that can be, uh, it's not, you know, it's not free. It's not, a, it's not a fortune, but it does cost something and they have sure. to pay for it internally with their own sound department. So they transferred these things to a hard drive and they sent it over to me and I booked uh, sessions with the mixing engineer who I was using and I still use from time to time. His name is Mike McDonald at a, a facility called Private Island Tracks at the time. Now they're called Private Island Audio. And we just did our usual process of going through them and I would bring the CDs in uh, as references for what the mixes are supposed to sound like. And I would record in the audio straight off the movies themselves to make sure that editorially everything was using the correct take and that the segues were, were correct. Uh, they were how they were meant to be. And over like three or four weeks, I put them together very quickly, just one after another. Wow. And the only thing that was a little frustrating is that we were going to do the man with the golden gun as well. But they basically said, look, kid, we spent too much money and you're only going to do through live and let die. And I was not in a position to argue. So I said, oh, okay, you know, I had my You're hand. killing me. Oh. Don't worry. It'll get done one day. Um, I don't know how or when, but I'm just telling you what happened because I thought you would yeah. want to know. Because that's interesting. One of my questions further on down my list is that, well, you know, do those tapes exist? And so you're uh, confirming we'll that to, they do. We'll get to that. The story is uh, how this all came together is just absolutely fascinating. Well, at the same time, though, it uh, wasn't always smooth. was that, as you're probably more than well aware, is that they used to abridge the, the cues on the vinyl, and, and the cues were all out of order. Mm -hmm. And um, I had some restrictions. They said you can't use any vocals because you'd have, we'd have to clear the vocals with the singers, and we don't have time for that. And I, that was very disappointing because you're probably aware of that 20th anniversary Bond, or maybe 30th anniversary album that they did that had like the uh, the Dionne Warwick version right. of, of uh, Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and things like that. So I was told, no, you can't use any of those. And I said, okay. You know, I was just not in a position to fight. Yeah. Because we, you know, I'll be, you're going to be annoyed again. We had a, an alternate version of the Diamonds Are Forever main title song, which huh. is longer. It has an extra verse. I've heard that. I have yeah. heard that there was an extra verse that wasn't included in the final product. Okay. Yeah. And so that you that was actually on tape as well. Well, it's on my computer now, but I can't give it to you. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a longer version of that. Um, so I had these restrictions, and but I really had the problem is I, I, I think I decided for Thunderball and You Only Live Twice, I, I needed to leave those albums uh, more or less as they were. And I would just put the, the, the previously unreleased music at the end because that's what we had done with The Living Daylights, which I had been, I had worked on that a few years earlier through knowing the people at MGM when they were doing albums through Rikodisc. Disc. 
But I did think for, for only uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service and Diamonds Are Forever, I always thought those albums, I'm, I mean, I'm sorry, I thought they sucked. You know, they were all out of order. They did. They only had the source music. They didn't have the music you really wanted. So I said, let me just put these all in CD. And for Diamonds Are Forever, it all fit. And then I had some alternates that we put at the end. And for Honor Majesty's Secret Service, I had to leave some music out because it didn't all fit on one disc. Wow. So I had to cut it down a little. But I have, the, I have the rest. Someone will get to it one day. Yeah. But I it's, said, let me put it in film sequence and make it more of a program and make it make sense chronologically. And then they said, no, you can't do that. And I said, huh. oh. Uh, yeah, I, I was like, why? And they said, well, no, it has to be it has to be the the old tracks first, and then it has to be the new stuff after. And I said, okay, well, let me just reshuffle them, and then at least people on iTunes or whatever we were doing at the time, they could put them back in the order that they're meant to be. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Didn't you put in the liner notes? Was there wasn't there a suggestion for if you want to play these in sequence? Here's the order you would play them, or, or I've I seen that somewhere. Remember. I haven't looked at the liner notes in 15 years. Uh, but what happened was very late, very, very late. They, they said, why are the times different? Why, is the, why are these selections different? Because even though I had reordered them in the album sequence, I kept adding the, the adjacent cues so that it would still make sense chronologically. It's a little hard to describe, but I, I snuck in all this extra music. And very late, they said, hey, why'd you do that? And you can't do that. And I sort of said, well, I have to do that. It's the only way it can be done. And I, I remember there was actually like a weekend when I was possibly under the impression that they weren't going to allow it and they were going to undo this three or four weeks of, of frantic, desperate work that, that I really had my heart set on. And then on Monday they said, okay, kid, we'll let you do what you want to do. So that was a very upsetting call. And I just remember like kind of having to manage up, if you know that expression. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but then it came out, everybody was happy. And then they kept asking me, what about the rest? And, and those questions, what about the rest have not stopped, even though I don't really have an answer for anybody. One of the gems that Lucas had discovered was from the movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service. The reason why it was a gem, well, not only was it unreleased music, it was music that was written for the film that wasn't used in the film. And it quite frankly in many people's opinions, including mine and Lucas's, is quite possibly one of the most beautiful pieces of music John Barry ever wrote. He, uh, Lucas ended up naming the cue, and he called it Dusk at Piz Gloria. Let's have a listen to that. I think you'll enjoy it.
There are a few giants, if you will, in the uh, film music world. And I don't mean the composers per se, but there are other heroes out there that uh, have done a lot to promote uh, film music in general. One guest that I was really tickled to get is one of those people. His name is Robert Townsend. I mean, this guy has literally produced hundreds of scores, hundreds of recordings, sometimes using the original master tapes, sometimes re-recording them uh, from a whole wide variety of different uh, composers. He was one of the key people who uh, was running Varese Saraban uh, when it was in its heyday of uh, putting out film soundtracks. Now he's branched out on his own, but uh, he truly is a giant and responsible for a lot of great scores that are out there that we probably wouldn't have gotten if it weren't for him. So needless to say, I was really tickled to have him on the show. And uh, he had a particularly deep relationship, close relationship with Jerry Goldsmith, another favorite composer of mine. And uh, he was kind enough to, to share some of those experiences because... In the years that they uh, knew each other, they not only became, you know, uh, great business partners and did a lot of great projects together, but they also became close friends. This uh, old master of composer of film music and this young kid, their relationship started, I think, right when he was around 20 years old. So quite amazing. And he had a lot of interesting stories and things to share about Jerry Goldsmith. And that's what we're going to hear here. Great create works and but jerry goldsmith for example was just always working on film and so there's still early 60s and 70s scores of his that have never been released there's so a lot many of his tv work that that's what amazed me i think in his early days wasn't he like a contract composer for one of the well, studios he, and yeah, a lot he, of these live programs he'd have to come up with music for a half hour or an hour program and he'd have like you know five or seven days in order to compose it and record it right yeah exactly and before that radio i mean he traveled traversed all of the the mediums of he started <laughs> in radio then he did television with shows like thriller and the twilight zone and Gunsmoke and and um the man from uncle and he was just incredible at everything he did and then of course his feature film career developed and took him off on a on another adventure and so he wasn't able to keep writing for for television the way he had been and and obviously radio changed as well but even if you listen to his early radio scores an episode of a william conrad show called 1489 words that he wrote the music for and it's just phenomenal and again as i said earlier just so sophisticated we're right out of the gate he was a fully formed version of jerry goldsmith he didn't need to grow into himself although he did throughout his life and career he grew musically but that growth wasn't required for him to achieve greatness he came right out of the gate as a oh my goodness where has this voice come from where has this guy come from this is <laughs> phenomenal and i've talked to musicians and other composers who who witnessed the emergence who were in los angeles at the time when jerry goldsmith burst onto the scene and they talk about that of just everyone everyone's jaw dropping and uh being in awe of this this new voice, this new talent that was just exploding right from the beginning. One of the great things about Robert is that he's a, he's got a treasure chest of stories, 
of uh, all these great composers that he's uh, worked with and met and became friends with. Uh, he really developed a lot of good relationships, close relationships with uh, many composers that are out there. And as a result, he uh, ended up becoming a library of uh, film music history. One of the more interesting stories that I had ever heard, and I'd never heard it in this kind of detail until this interview, was the story behind um, the rejected score for 2001 A Space Odyssey. The score was written by Alex North. And there's a fascinating story about uh, how that all worked and how that all happened. And uh, Robert was kind enough to share it here. The 2001 story is, is an epic unto itself. Alex was hired to write the score by Kubrick. Kubrick had been encouraged to create an original score for the films. The MGM wanted an original score for the film and, in fact, actually recommended Alex North, who had previously worked with Kubrick on Spartacus. So there was a relationship between Kubrick and North from that. Okay. So Kubrick was going along with this, but with nefarious intentions because he knew he was not going to use the score in the film. So the fact that North's music wasn't in the movie had nothing to do with Kubrick being unhappy in any way with what North had done because it was predetermined that the score was not going to be in the film. The whole thing was a fake. But he and, never told Alex this, correct? But he never, but he never told Alex exactly. Well, and that's... and so the whole thing was a fraud. He let him on, where North almost killed himself writing this score. Alex was taken to the recording session in an ambulance. He was not oh. able to conduct himself. His orchestrator Henry Brandt conducted the original recording sessions, mm. and and then was told he would receive a call when, when the second half of the movie was ready for scoring. The call never came. Alex made a call to follow up and say, so when am I getting the other scenes? And he was told that the decision had been made that only sound effects and breathing effects would be used to complete the score rather than a score to accompany okay. the visuals in the second half. Mm -hmm. so, so then that was the end of the composing aspect of the score. And the recording sessions, so then were, were done, time passed, and then the ultimate premiere of the film, the screening in New York, took place with Alex and his wife, Anna, attending the screening, Alex expecting to hear his score, and hearing Strauss. And he bolted from his seat, he stood up in shock at what was happening, and then fell back into his seat, just stunned and broken over the treatment of his music and, and the treatment to him yeah. where he was never even told. And, and it's a masterpiece work. It's not a, it's not a footnote. So this was unheard music. It was unknown music. And it took 25 years for anyone in the world to, to ultimately hear it. After I started visiting Alex in the late eighties and, and 1990 and, and talking to him about new recordings. And I brought up 2001, even though everyone knew 2001 was a topic you're not supposed to bring up with him, <laughs> but I did. And then on a subsequent visit to him, you know, he walked behind the piano before lunch one day and picked up a, a stack of scores wrapped in brown paper and walked over to me and put his 2001 manuscripts in my hands with his blessing to do the recording. Wow. And they almost vibrated, you know, it was so exciting. <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was holding and that this was the beginning of what became the world premiere 
recording and release of Alex North's unused music for 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was Jerry... He, I- uh, yeah, did, was he able to, uh, uh, to hear it finally? No, sad, sadly oh. not. He, he passed away, and uh, the recording didn't happen until January of 1993, and Jerry and I went to London, recorded in Studio One at Abbey Road with a 105-piece symphony orchestra. Wow. It was beyond words, the whole experience, hearing that music come to life and then introducing it to the world and letting, letting people hear. Yeah, and, I bet that was letting, special. Yeah, letting people hear, the world hear for the first time, this masterpiece score, this, this new, this lost opus from a, one of film music's greatest composers in history. And it is, it is so powerful, so groundbreaking, would have, would have been so influential had it actually been used in the film. But that was history that could never be undone. Has anybody, I'm curious, has anybody ever kind of, sometimes, you know, fans just with video editing software, we could lay in a new music track. Are you aware of anyone that's ever tried to do that? Well, there's been some of that, and some of that is possible, but not to the degree of, for example, being able to put the entire score against the film, because the movie was still being edited at the time when Kubrick was changing course and and taking Norse music out and returning to his classical music selections. So, so the film as cut that people know now, just, it can't actually hold the score in the way that North wrote it because it was a different version of the film that North wrote his music for. Okay. But, um, but there are scenes, there are, there are certain scenes that can, point us in the direction we'll we'll sync up well enough that it gives us a glimpse of what it could have been and we actually did premiere a live performance of the space station docking queue to picture at the ghent uh in ghent at the world soundtrack awards in concert last year Mm. uh last october with dirk brasset uh conducting the brussels philharmonic and i gave a seminar uh, before the performance and it was so exciting to see that happen and hear that performance really I, moving and beautiful. And, and we've, we've, there's a larger suite of Alex's music that we've done in concert as well in Tenerife at Fumin Cité years ago and, and elsewhere. But this was the first time to actually perform a cue live to picture and present, present the music in that way. Right. Well, let's, uh, let's have a listen to this. This is, uh, as he mentioned, it's a cue from the unused score that Alex North had written for 2001 a space odyssey and the uh, uh yeah the queue is called space station docking sit back and enjoy
if there's such a thing as uh, music royalty, this guest that I had on uh, would probably fall into that category. John Altman is a uh, a fixture in the, the UK in terms of his contributions to music, not only pop music and uh, as a songwriter, uh, but as a film composer and arranger, uh, and for that matter, as a musician. I think he plays several instruments, but the one he's most well-known for is the uh, saxophone. Fascinating gentleman who had some great stories uh, and shared with us a lot of his favorites. But the one thing I wanted to ask him about that I was really interested in hearing was the story behind him writing a short uh, cue, not really short, but it's you know a couple minutes long, uh, for the James Bond film Goldeneye. Uh, it was the only time that uh, there was music that wasn't used uh, in the final film that was written by the film's primary composer, Eric Serra. And I thought there had to be a great story behind this, and uh, John didn't disappoint at all. And not only did he uh, share the story behind it, but since his cue was never released commercially, uh, he was kind enough to share it with us, and so we get to play uh, which you heard in the film, which isn't actually on the CD for the soundtrack. Anyway, here's John Altman uh, telling us the story behind that. I'd done two movies with Eric and Luke Besson, which were Atlantis and then Leon, which was called The Professional. In right. Wonderful film. Yes. And um, the producers, the Bond producers, had seen The Professional and wanted the same team, basically. So Eric came on board as a composer, and I came on board as the arranger. Because it was a new Bond, there hadn't been a Bond in the cinema for 10 years, you know, right. new broom, we want to go radical, we want to go revolutionary. Um, I think the first hint of trouble came when we all went to Paris, and Eric played what he'd written for the opening scene, which was the pre-credit scene where Bond is, you know, on a metal staircase and doing all kinds of sort of subterfuge type things. Right. And um, the, the editor was there and he said, do you think this bit could be a bit faster? And Eric said, I like the speed it's at. And I thought, oh, okay. Then uh, the producer said, I'm not sure I like that noise that's on something or other. And Eric said, well, I like it. And he walked out the room. And I thought, it's not going to go very well. Uh-oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, I soon realized, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm there as an orchestrator. And Eric had only really scored for Luke Besson, who he'd been to school with, who accepted everything he did without question. You know, if Eric's done it, it's in the film. Suddenly, there were sort of eight cooks on the, on the movie, all with their own ideas. And Eric wasn't prepared to listen to any of them. So the first thing that happened was they wound up phoning me all the time. You know, what have we got for this? What have we got for that? And I said to my agent, could you please get them off my back? I'm, I'm orchestrating Eric's music. I'm not the composer. Mm -hmm. So I then got a phone call a week before the film was released from Pinewood saying, could you come down straight away? 
And I turned to my friend and said, um, I think it's the tank chase, which I didn't work on, Eric's version. It was all synthesized. Yeah. I got to Pinewood and I saw the clip with his music and the editor said, I've worked hard on this. If that music stays, my name comes off the film. And then the dubbing editor said the same Holy thing. Holy smokes. It was really, you know, it was quite dramatic. You know? Yes. And uh, Martin Campbell, the director, turned to me and said, um, could you possibly rescore it? And I said, well, the thing is, I know what you want. You know, I've, I've worked out that you want a traditional James Bond moment. And when do you need it? And they said, well, um, we need, we re, we're opening next Friday. So we really <laughs> need it Tuesday at the latest. This is Friday. <laughs> so oh I gosh. said, well, I can do it, but I need you, first of all, to, to clear it with Eric because he's, you've hired him. You've got to give him first chance at doing it. You know, um, I, I can't just take it over from him. So they rang Eric and he basically said, I'm not going to do it again. I give my blessing. He can go for it, you know. Hmm. And I sat down on the Saturday. I wrote the cue on Saturday. I had three orchestrators standing by on the Sunday. And I thought, when will I ever get the chance to write a sequence for a Bond movie? So hmm. I orchestrated the whole thing on the Sunday. It was copied on Monday, recorded on Tuesday. Oh Dumped on Wednesday, and the film came out on Friday. Oh my gosh! And it is so different than what was, yeah. Because what, what? Because what Eric had written for the Tank Chase is on the CD. It is, and and it, it, it's, yeah, for, for, um, it's really different. Yeah, and it's very quirky, and you know, you either love it or hate it, and um, not really well, at all. Yeah, and John Barry, of course, had been so connected to that series i mean even to the point where barbara uh, broccoli one of the producers i'm sure you were dealing with was uh i mean her, her children uh, the 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 godfather of her children is john barry i mean there's just there's a, yeah, yeah. A, a kind of a family kind of a connection and funnily enough at one point um one of the producers said in the studio if i'd known you were this quick i'd have got you to rescore the whole film <laughs> and I, oh, thank heavens that didn't happen but oh my so goodness well, let's uh, thank you for sharing that. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, I, I think we uh, we should take a look at uh, or take a listen to this. It's mm. a it's a fabulous uh, piece of music. This was during a tank chase in Saint Petersburg in the film Goldeneye, and it's written by our guest John Altman.
And now we come to uh, perhaps the proudest moment I've had in the uh, time that I've been doing What's the Score. I reached back into my archives and uh, brought back something that I had done as a young man. I actually had a chance to interview John Barry, my favorite composer, my hero. Uh, yeah, I'd kept it to myself for years just because of uh, the way I sounded as a, as a geek 24-year-old that just couldn't keep his mouth shut. But I was able to do the editing to minimize that. And I explain more about it uh, in the actual episode, which if you want to listen to it, I would encourage you to do so. Anyway, it uh, it was a real crowning achievement for me, technically being able to kind of pull it off and and also just the value, I think, that it added to the program. I was able to ask uh, my hero, my favorite composer, questions that I'd always wanted to ask. And they were just really kind of simple straightforward questions, nothing really all that complex. In this clip I'm going to play, we uh, we talked about uh, who makes the decisions as to what finally gets uh, put on the album. Uh, unreleased music, we talk a little bit about that. And then I also uh, mentioned the, uh, the difference in uh, two gun barrel sequences and how he had scored those differently and uh, was curious about that. Uh, and some of these answers that you'll hear are really kind of fascinating, given what we know now. But you have to remember, this was 1981. So, uh, have a listen to this. This is my conversation with John Barry on a variety of things. I then wanted to get into the albums that had been released and why some albums didn't have certain cues in there. I was frustrated that there was a lot of unreleased music. I asked him... Uh, who chooses what goes on the album? You know, you put them together, but then the recording companies um, also have uh, an idea of what they feel is representative for mm -hmm. them, you know. Yeah. Um, I know, and in Diamonds of Forever, we use a lot of the source music in that album, which I, I don't think should have been done. Will any of that uh, unreleased music ever see the light of day? I doubt it. I really doubt it. Yeah. You know. Then I wanted to ask him, why was the big difference in the opening gun barrel music, if you think about it, from Diamonds Are Forever, and then he skipped the next one, and then came back for Man With A Golden Gun, it was entirely different. I asked him, uh, just out of curiosity, why that was. It's probably a subconscious change. Yeah. You know, reacting to the way it's being played on screen. Because mm -hmm. uh, that's what you're having to go with. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's kind of just a, a more classical f form of orchestration. Yeah. 
yeah. taking it off that hard driving guitar thing and putting it into symphonic terms, it, it just takes a little of the stridency out of it, you know. Again, this is uh, 1981. So I was interested uh, what was in his future as he saw it, uh, future projects and things of that nature. Uh, I think he provided some interesting answers. Uh, again, knowing what we know today, it's interesting to hear what his perspective was back in 1981. Well, there, there is talk about that. Uh, what I'm doing now, the last movie I did was Body Heat. I don't know if you've seen that. Yes, I have. I enjoyed it. Um, the, there is talk of Billy coming over here, but uh, at the moment I'm working on um, a Broadway show of The Little Prince, the Sonic Dupre yeah. story. And we start, uh, we start rehearsals on the 20, 23rd of this month. Fantastic. And we'll be opening, well, sometime in the early New Year on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be deeply involved with that? I mean... Absolutely. I have been for the last, last two years, on and off, but now, over the last uh, last six months, I've not been doing anything else except I did Body Heat. I went to LA and did Body Heat, but I've been just concentrating on that. Yeah. Is there going to be an album for Body Heat? Uh, again, unfortunately, no. You know. Yeah. And for doing future Bond films? I doubt it. I doubt it because it's being made in England, and I don't go back there anymore. Yeah. And um, so I really doubt that. Yeah, I, I guess that, that was the only reason you could do Moonraker is because it was a co- it was a French British co-production, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But I think Bill did a good job on the, on the, on the, the last one. That certainly was a highlight of my life, and I'm really happy that I'm able to uh, share it with all of you. It's a, a very highly personal episode, and I hope you've had a chance to listen to it. If you haven't, please visit the archives. Uh, all the programs that we've done are on there. And there's lots of interesting guests and shows and music that we haven't played on this retrospective today. Uh, I feel bad about that. And I hope some of my uh, guests who weren't mentioned today will understand I just couldn't get to everybody in a short little anniversary show. But each and every one of my guests has been important, uh, very entertaining with some great music choices. Uh, and I feel like I've made a lot of uh, new friends in the in the meantime. So, my thanks to all my uh, all my guests that have been on so far with what's the score. Uh, my thanks also to uh, all of you for listening. It, your support means a great deal to me. Uh, and feel free to reach out. Feel free to uh, get in touch with me uh, and you know make suggestions or just give feedback. And as always, I'm really grateful if you can like our Facebook page. And follow it, uh, as well as uh, choosing some likes on the episodes on the uh, Podbean page. I'd really be grateful for that as well. So I think what we'll go out to today is a great piece of music written by John Barry from his Oscar-winning score for The Lion in Winter. Really one of his great crowning achievements. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the end titles from The Lion in Winter.
that's going to wrap it for this episode, our first anniversary episode, and with the hope of many more to come. There's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks, as always, for listening to What's the Score?